Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast. Got a fun one today. It's going to definitely be a two-parter. Had a great conversation this past week with Brandel Chambly of the Golf Channel. He's someone I wanted to have on for a long time. I think uh, he's much he's he's a polarizing figure. Um, I don't. I definitely don't always agree with him, and we talk a lot about that. I do always respect the fact that he is well researched and he backs his opinions up at least with some sorts of facts. We kind of get into it a little bit on the back half, actually a lot of bit on the back half regarding course design, technology, and that whole circular issue. And uh, he, I know he, he rubs a lot of people the wrong way and his his way of going about it on Twitter and whatnot, but I think that conversation, we were more aligned than I thought we would be. There's definitely some points that we debate pretty heavily in it, but uh, big appreciation for Brandel for coming on and sitting down for an hour and a half, almost hour and 45 minutes or so. And just talking golf, you can tell how much the guy is very passionate about golf. Whether whether you like him or not, I think it's very fair to consider it at minimum consider the things that he says. And uh, like I said, I like him for for what he does for for the game of golf, how much he cares about it, and the passion he puts into it. So, and if you guys have been on the internet today, I'm imagining that you've seen the buzz surrounding Callaway's new driver teaser video. And we were lucky enough to get a first look at this thing, as well as we got to see a couple of the pros try it out for the first time a couple weeks ago at the ad shootout in Carlsbad. And believe me when I say this driver is absolutely going to shock people. The technology in it is something that has never really been accomplished before in the golf equipment industry. And it's going to be a quantum leap in driver performance, but don't don't just take my word for it. Uh, for those of you that listened to the Ollie Schneider Jans podcast last week, uh, or if you didn't listen to it, I guess here's what he had to say about the driver. Because I normally am right around 183, 184 would be like I'm really pumping it right now, and I hit 189, huh. and it was I've never seen that at that. The only time I've seen anything close to that is when it's really hot out and I'm really warmed up and middle of the season, I might get close to that. But this was with, I was wearing a sweater at 10 AM in Atlanta with 60 degrees out and I was hitting it 183 with my driver was maxing it out. And I hit 189 with this one once oh. and it was just, it came champs like 195 see, for perspective, which is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Be sure to check out the videos on all of Callaway's social channels or at callawaygolf.com slash AI and stay tuned for details on January 4th. Without further delay, here is Brandel Shambly. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. For the first time, we've been wanting to do this for a while, always wanted to do it in person, but uh, we're down here at uh, at your club here in Orlando, Ritz-Carlton. That's, that's right. Brandel Shambly, yeah. welcome to the show. Well, thanks for coming down. Uh, always enjoy y'all's stuff, and nice talking to you. Looking uh, forward to it. Yeah, looking forward to it a lot. I know uh, there's a lot I want to get into. I kind of want to start with your career first, and I know that... A lot of people are kind of quick on the trigger to throw back at you that you only won once on tour, but I think that's one very unfair. I think making it to professional golf and winning is a very, very impressive thing. And I also think you don't need to have won a ton on tour to have an opinion on things in golf. Like you've been there um, and whatnot. But do you what are what are you most proud of, of out of your playing career? I guess uh, the fact that I was 
a really good player. You know, I, I had a, uh, a heck of a career uh, as an amateur golfer. I didn't start till I was kind of late, so I, I was kind of behind the eight ball. But the fact that I, I got so good so quickly um, and became, you know, one of the best, you know, top five amateurs in the country and certainly one of the top five college players in the country. How'd that happen? Uh, I just worked at it really hard. You know, I was a good athlete. You know, growing up, I um, I did everything. You know, I ran track and uh, I was fast. So, you know, I was blessed with fast twitch muscles and uh, played football until guys got really big. And I rode horses competitively uh, until they, you know, fell over on me and kicked me enough where I was like, I got to try something else. But uh, but once I took up golf, I fell in love with it. You know, there was there was something about it that was just magical for me, and I never quit working at it. I'm I'm a I'm a hard worker, and I'm good at imitating golfers. You know, I'm good at good imitating athletes, and I'd go out in the backyard and I'd work on my Jerry Pate backswing and my Jack Nicklaus leg drive, and you know, hitting pitch shots like Seve and. I just got good. And then, were you a student of the golf swing back then as you, as you mm, seem to be now? No, no, I wasn't. I, uh, you know, I just, I certainly read everything that was out there, but I wouldn't say that I was a student of the game. I, I, you know, there wasn't enough video capability available to really be a student of the game. I, I read and I looked, but, but it, I was always told by people in the game not to ever mess with my golf swing, at least early on. And early on, I... You know, I, I listened. Um, I, I, I slowly became, you know, corrupted by instruction later on. But uh, and then I guess my professional career, you know, I'm I'm quite pleased with my professional career. I played a long time, um, you know, the better part of 15 years professional golf. Um, you know, I I, I, I do get time. A, it's a long time. I get I get I chuckle when people try to denigrate my career. You know, when you consider how many people want to play professional golf, how many people are trying to play professional golf. I think my highest world ranking was 55th. I, I think we can all agree that when you've ascended to 55th best player in the world or 55th best at anything in the world, doesn't matter what it is, you're extraordinary at what you do. So, um, you know, I, I was an extraordinary golfer. Um, I was a decent tour player, but as a golfer, I was an extraordinary golfer. And uh, I loved every second of it. And I, I wanted to do something different for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I think, um, you know, TV ended up being a, a means to an end for me to get out of golf. I think people can look at middle, quote unquote, middle of the road on the PGA Tour as being average. But when you think <laughs> about how many people are playing professional golf and honestly getting to know some of the web.com tour guys that play in Jacksonville and stuff, yeah. seeing that grind and following them week to week and like trying to see if they can maintain their web tour status. Yeah. It's, it's a whole different appreciation for well, the guys the, after the big tour. The thing about golf that is different from every other sport and every other sport, there is a substantial differential between the very best and the average in that sport, and even the worst in that sport, it would be somewhere to fall somewhere between 20 and 40%. Um, the difference between the very best in golf, it's 3%. It's 3% between the very best and the tour average, about 7% between the very best and the worst. So if you're one of those players that can find their way to the tour and maintain your status out there for a period of time, you're touching very near the heights of exceptionalism. Um, and so, yeah, there were a few times where, and look, if you're a golfer, you're very good at lying to yourself. Um, you have to be. 
you know, there, you know, there was hardly a day that went by when I was on the range. I wasn't hitting shots that I, I would say nobody in the world can beat me. No, nobody in the world can hit these shots. Yeah, you have to think that and, way. And you do. And, and you know, I, did, I believed it. You know, I, I absolutely believed it. You know, I, I, um, I worked very hard at it. Now, look, you'd get paired with Nick Price or Tom Watson or Greg Norman and you think, all right, you know, you just got slapped in the face with some reality there and you'd go back to work. But in your mind... The way it works is you're like, all right, I'm going to get there. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to get there. And you go back to work. But, you know, um, when you see a player come along of, of that ilk, you you realize, okay, <laughs> maybe my dream as a child to be the best golfer in the world is not going to be realized. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm going to stop trying. And that doesn't mean you can't beat them on a week-to-week basis. You well, know? Yeah. I mean, that's the way golf is, you know, uh, given such a fine line between the best and the tour average. Uh that's why if you win 3% of the time, you'll be in the Hall of Fame. You touched on it there. You said uh, something along the lines of being corrupted by instruction. What does that mean and what, what kind of happened to you along that process? Uh, you know, when I, when I got really good at golf, I happened to live in an area that was a mecca for instructors in, in Austin, Texas. And so, you know, there were 10, 20, 30 of the quote unquote best instructors in the world sort of traipsing around where I was. And, you know, at any given time I'd look around and there'd be several of them watching me hit golf balls and inquisitive as I was, you know, you'd begin to talk to them and little by little you begin to be corrupted because certainly at that stage, less so now, but certainly at that stage, they were guessing, they were completely guessing and whatever they were telling you was, you know, likely wrong. I, I say now, and to some extent, with few exceptions, um, you know, if you would be just as well served trying to do the opposite of what an instructor tells you <laughs> as doing what they tell you, really? it might just work, whatever they're telling you. I mean, it has just as good a chance. Um, you know, it's becoming less that way. I think instruction has improved greatly in the last four or five years because of high definition video and things like um, pressure traces, uh, understanding pressure traces. Uh, when I was growing up, and even until, I don't know, maybe even eight, nine, ten years ago, you go, back, you go back and you watch TV and you realize how blurry things were. And we all thought it was great. Absolutely. But the arms were blurry, the hands were blurry, the club face was blurry. You could not definitively say what someone was doing. And these little micro moves are, are very important. And, and then, you know, as you're looking at the club and you're looking at the hands and you're looking at the arms, you're also missing really what's going on, uh, what's causing those things to happen. Uh, and that's the larger part of, uh, piece of the puzzle is, is, you know, when you're just looking at video, you can't really tell how much weight is where and, and where um, a player is moving and um, where they're extending and so forth. But um, high-definition video, um, some forensic um, devices that allow us to measure those things have really helped instruction. And that's the reason why you're going to see an influx of players come to the PGA Tour. Uh, well, that's a large part of the reason why you're going to see an influx of players come to the PGA Tour that, that swing 125 miles an hour plus. Uh, because instruction has gotten better, athletes have gotten better, um, and, uh, and it's going to be cool to watch. I struggle with understanding instruction at the highest level in golf because inherently it's, it's not like talking about golf. It is it's for somebody like Dustin Johnson. He is one of, if not the best in the world at figuring out how to hit this golf ball. And it's the instructor, whoever is helping him doesn't know the feeling of what it's like to hit the ball like DJ. 
So what is what does an instructor do? In my mind, it's like, all right, instructor is there for if you're not doing something well to help identify what it is. But how do you how does a player balance between taking too much information from an instructor and being like, this is exactly what I need help with? Do you have any insight into that? Well, I'd say first that that every golfer is different, and an instructor I think would get a pretty clear grasp on that just with a five minute conversation to know if they're feel-oriented player and any specific things um, as it relates to the to the golf swing will sort of clutter up their mind. But in general, I, I say that teachers learn from athletes, not the other way around. Um, you know, it's the athlete that originates. And with very few exceptions, I would say that's true. Um, you know, Jack Grout told Jack Nicholas to get his hands high and, and he flew his right elbow. Now, I'll give Jack Grout a lot of credit because at the time he was teaching Jack Nicholas, Jack, I think, started playing around 1950. If you can imagine um, the height of the popularity of Ben Hogan led to the movie Follow the Sun. It all came about in 1950. There would have been, you'd imagine every teacher teaching a flat golf swing. Power Golf came out in 46 or 7 uh, by Ben Hogan. But yet Jack Grout didn't teach that because Jack Grout had a great understanding of the golf swing that he had learned from Henry Picard. He learned from Alex Morrison. So he taught Jack to hit the ball high. Jack originated. Um, you know, I, I use as an example the Fosbury flop a lot. Um, you know, when, when Fosbury originated that move, his teachers, his coaches implored him to stop it, that he was losing his mind. You know, three, four years later, every single uh, high jumper was using the Fosbury flop. Same is true in golf. You know, I mean, Dustin Johnson uh, has the type of golf swing that um, that allows him to rotate very fast and and extend. And you know, some of the arguments that I get in with instructors is, you know, I will start talking about a particular move that a player has as being extraordinary and being exceptional and being commonality amongst the best and they'll build, they'll shoot out you know somebody else who does it completely different and i'm like of course there's any number of ways to swing swing a club or play the game any number but i am not going to sit here and pretend that they're all equal not by a long shot uh, the commonalities of the greatest players of all time um <laughs> you know don't say that don't say that at all um, so there is a definite advantage to players that rotate faster and extend more and hit the ball higher and Dustin Johnson, you know, is a supreme, an absolute supreme athlete. Um, and, you know, how good is he? There's only three players in the history of the world rankings that have held the world uh, the world ranking of number one, the number one spot for 60 consecutive weeks or more. There's only three, it's Tigers, Greg Norman, and, and Dustin Johnson. Hmm. So it's uh, – and he's – he and Roy McIlroy really are the only two in my mind that have the potential to 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 dominate the world rankings. Somebody like Bryson, are you – are you surprised – I guess not even somebody like Bryson, specifically to Bryson DeChambeau, <laughs> are you – because I don't think there is anybody like Bryson – are you surprised at how well his his methodology is working at the highest level in golf? I am. I am. Why you know, and, and for a while I thought he might change the game of golf. I, I don't anymore. But for a while I thought he might, you know, he changed uh, the game of golf. I thought that um, if, in fact, he came to dominate the game of golf, in other words, hit the ball higher, longer, straighter than anybody else. And he's, look, he's he's got a heck of a method and he's a heck of an athlete. And he's uh, a very, very hard worker, great attitude. Uh, and, 
and that carries you to the PGA Tour, perseverance and a great attitude. But his particular method, um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's great because he owns it. Uh, he he um, spent a lot of time reading the golf machine, still does, I guess. He talks about it. But it's his own interpretation of the golf machine. Every other player that I've ever seen try to play professional golf who read that book had a... I'd say a, an interpretation that is consistent with Ben Doyle, who primarily taught that book, uh, and Chuck Cook um, is another one who, who uh, I think respects that book. And they carry angled, right arm angle, lag deep into the downswing. And, um, you know, the two biggest proponents of it were Bobby Clampett and Michael Grady, both great athletes, but neither of them had significant success. Um, and I would say that, you know, for almost 50 years that book's been out and everybody who's played this game has basically tried to read that book. Um, a lot of it's nonsense and, and tried to bring whatever ideas they have to fruition uh, without much success. I always argue that very early on in that book, I, uh, it states that the head cannot move, that the head must stay still. And my argument about the specifics in that book are how can you expect me to believe any of the specifics of that book? When they get something as simple as as the head staying still, um, which it doesn't, never has, never will for any great player. Um, when they get something as simple as that wrong, how could they be right on any of the particulars? But anyway, Bryson has a, his own interpretation of that book and hard work. Uh, he doesn't carry lag deep into his downswing and he rotates and he covers the ball and he does a lot of cool things. Back to your playing career, I, I believe I've read about it, but I don't believe I've ever heard you talk about it. But your story from the 1999 Masters, I believe it was the, the only Masters you played in, correct? That is, yeah, yeah. And I want to know like your mindset coming into that week, how you <laughs> played the first couple of days and what happened on the weekend and just kind of your your uh, your memories from the 99 Masters. Well, um, you know, I spent the week before the Masters actually practicing here in Orlando. At that time, I was working with David Ledbetter. And Nick Price was was down there working with Lead, and so you know I think even Faldo was was in um, in Orlando at that point. So it was it was uh, it was hopping. It was uh, you know every you know it seemed like every good player was trying to tune up that week somewhere here in Orlando. And <clears throat> I spent a lot of time pitching and chipping off the putting green that week because at that time you couldn't find any place right. you know to simulate the agronomy you were going to face at Augusta National. So uh, I came in there uh, actually Nick loaned me his plane um i paid for it but he, he essentially loaned me his plane to fly up there i love it my uh, friends do that yeah yeah um uh, you know he had uh i don't think he was going up till later and he, you know he said you know just just you know take my plane up there um i can't remember what type of plane it was but anyway it was <clears throat> it was a it was a hoot to fly straight into augusta how much does that cost <clears throat> to loan a plane from a friend I, if I, I think it cost me like four grand i think oh. i had to pay for the gas just to get there i think that was it it was i think that's what it was maybe it was a bit more but anyway i i went up there and i was, I was in pretty good shape with my game but more than anything i had uh, i had my arms around how to play that golf course because a good friend of mine glenn day was really good friends with nicholas and had gone in and Jack had gone over every single hole and the specific strategy for every hole location and, and charted it out in his, uh, in his yardage book. So Glenn and I played a practice round and right there in front of us was the key to Augusta National from the greatest player of all time. 
So I, I knew where to hit it when the whole location was, you know, sort of front ride at one and knew where to hit it when the whole locations were front ride at three and left at three and ride at four and back left at six. And so, I, you know, I had a very clear image in my mind of not only where to hit it and what shots to hit. And, um, you know, I, I didn't have any doubt. Um, so I actually, you know, I, I was tied for the lead after the round. But, you know, it's funny when you're playing well and um, when you've got a very clear understanding of how you need to play a golf course. Uh, I didn't really feel like I did anything exceptional that day other than, you know, just not getting nervous. I just played golf. And I was in a great group, um, you know, with two guys that, uh, that I liked a lot. Uh, Bill Glasson was in that group. He and I ended up tied uh, at week's end. And then Jose Maria Alfaba, who went on to win. So uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a marvelous week. It was a magical week. I had my best friends, uh, my former sponsor, and my best friend was there. And they brought in barbecue from my favorite place in Texas. And you know, some of my family members came in. None of them know anything about golf. None. I mean, zero, <laughs> zero. They know nothing. Like my older brother, Bill, <clears throat> he's got his own law firm. He does extraordinarily well in life. And uh, he rented a, an enormous bus and brought some of his biggest clients, hired country and Western singers to sing the whole way over and barbecue. <laughs> and he showed up and he was like, you know, where are my tickets? And I was like, Bill, you know, I only get eight tickets <laughs> and I have to buy them all myself. And, uh, you know, Bill was funny. He was like, oh, no problem. I'll go get tickets. And I was like, well, they're really hard to get. Bill. That's not how it you works. know, I don't know how, I don't know how you're going to get them. But he did. He ended up getting them. Really? You know, he did. You know, well, money solves a lot of problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, my dad actually found a, a, a weak badge walking into, uh, on the very first day, he found a weekly badge to Augusta National on, on the ground. And he picked it up and he walked over to one of the Pinkerton guards and said, look, I, I just found this badge and I'm sure somebody's going to be looking for it. And the guard looked at my dad like he was an alien. He was like, you're you're giving me this badge that you found. And my dad's like, yeah, I'm sure somebody's looking for it. I'm sure somebody would like to have this bag. He's like, do you have any idea what this is worth? Nobody gives these, nobody. <laughs> and my dad was like, well, I don't want to take it from somebody. That's but, a golfer right there, playing know, by the rules. Yeah, but my, you know, my, uh, but my family doesn't really know anything about golf, but they, uh, but my best friend, uh, but he did. And we had some wonderful nights sitting on the back patio there at Augusta National. And then... Take take me through going into the weekend. What your nerves were like, where you were at on the leaderboard. Yeah, you know, I uh, I was in decent position. I think I was only a, you know four or five back after two rounds, maybe maybe not even that far. But I warmed up on Saturday, and and uh, you know, I just hit every shot. You know, every trajectory, every shot, and you know, you've done that. I've done that before. Every player's done that before and, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to play great but it usually never means right, you're going to play great but but i went out and you know i hit a bullet fade off a of one and a you know a nice high soft draw into that back left hole location i believe and just didn't miss a shot and I, it was a couple under through seven and i looked up and i was two back and i remember thinking there's no way i'm not winning this tournament <laughs> there's no way like nobody's going to beat me um i'm just hitting it too good and I smoked it off of eight, and and I could get there, and I was just gonna just torpedo this draw three wood, and it kicked left, and it got down under these trees or right up against these trees, and I made double, and I was just so pissed off at myself for for letting my emotions get the better of me, because the minute I started about thinking about winning the thing on Saturday, mind you, not Sunday, right? <laughs> Saturday, um, front nine on Saturday. my my. 
my adrenaline level went up a little bit. My nerves got the better of me, and I didn't play anywhere near as good on the back nine. Um, and then on Sunday, it was very difficult. You know, it was blowing. It was cold. Um, and I got paired with uh, Craig Stadler. I shot 72. I think the lowest score that day was 70. And I, you know, I had sandwich into 18. Pin was front right, and I hit it on the back of the green and three-putted. Or I'd have been in, you know, I'd have gotten back. I'd have finished 11th if I'd have two-putted. And eighth, I think, if I'd have birdied. So I was in a really good spot. But the little putt I missed uh, cost me getting an invite back. Hmm. And uh, when I finished, Stadler had a, you know, a pretty funny line. He said, you know, that was great playing for two reasons. One, it was windy as hell. And two, you had to watch me play all day long. You had to get paired with me. Um, but I think the coolest thing that happened to me that week was watching Jose Maria Alathabal um, hit all these pitches and chips around the green. It was a it was a kind of genius that you just don't see very often in your life. It was just gorgeous to watch. I'm 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 writing or finishing up basically uh, a book on the short game, and Jose Maria Alathabal will be is everywhere in that book. He was a god. Is he was what Ben Hogan was to ball striking, to chipping and pitching the ball. Um, so watching him, and then there was one particular moment on on Friday where we both drove it in the same spot on 11, and the pin was back right, just inside, if you're looking at it from the player's perspective, just inside the, the right edge of the back bunker. And I uh, I hit a five iron, and I aimed front right, and I didn't, I didn't even sniff looking at that whole location. And I smoked it, hit it perfect, and it, it landed. I was 30 feet right of the hole, and... I wasn't five feet from Jose Maria Alathabo, and his and he wanted to hit a five as well. And his caddy, uh, Brendan, I believe was his name. Can't remember his last name, but great guy. Forcefully told him it was a four, and Jose said, "No, it's a five. And he said, "Nope, it's a four. It's a cut four. And you know, I mean, cutting it over the water, you don't on eleven, you don't, yeah. on eleven. And and they went back and forth for a bit, and and Jose finally relented and said we'll see if you're right but he said it he was like we'll see if you're right and he ripped that forearm out of the bag and i've always thought he had just the most gorgeous iron swing he wasn't a, a great driver of the golf ball but he was just a phenomenal iron player and he ripped that forearm out of the bag and he hit this high cut over the water that landed about four feet from the hole and stopped you know maybe three feet from the hole and it was you know, it was easily one of the greatest shots I've ever seen in my life. And and listening to that caddy player exchange was just, uh, hmm. it was stunning. <laughs> Usually it's when you're trying to prove your caddy wrong, it's, it doesn't work out. That's that right. Way. But that shot That's seems right. to have resonated he, with you for 20 years. But Jose was such a great guy. You know, I, I made Eagle on uh, 13 day one. I, I hit a, it was when hybrids were pretty new and I hit a hybrid about three feet, almost made it. And he thinned. He was just in front of me and thinned. I think it was a two iron. Thinned it and it hit short of Race Creek and skipped over Race Creek and up onto the front fringe of the green. And, you know, it was a terrific break and he made it like a 30 footer for Eagle. <laughs> and then I made mine and, and we were walking off the green. And I said, Good Eagle. And he goes, No, no, no. Mine was crap. <laughs> Yours was good. You know, and uh, that was my best Spanish accent. But, uh, uh, you know, and then there was another time, uh, let's see. I guess it was Friday. I hit it left of 13. Bill Glasson doesn't talk much. Um, great guy, but doesn't talk much. And I hit it left of 13, and I was absolutely screwed. You know, just there was just no shot 
that came to mind over mm-hmm. there. You know, I, I, I thought about sandwich. I thought about a lob. I, you know, I was like, I, I don't know what to do here. And finally I thought, you know what? I've been watching Jose hit these little bump and run. So I pulled a forearm out and I, I hit the most beautiful bump and run up through the valley, up about a foot from the hole. I mean, it was just totally improvised, totally in the moment. Not a shot you practiced. I hadn't practiced it. Hadn't hit that shot all week. And, uh, you know, it was one of those where, you know, you, you act like you do that all the time, but it was exceptional. And as we were walking down 14, uh, Glasson sneaks up beside me and he was like, what'd you hit that shot with back there? I said, I hit a four iron. And he goes, you hit that shot much? And I said, I've never hit it in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, I said, uh, but I've been watching Jose do it for the last day and a half and he made it look pretty simple. <laughs> you know? Uh, I want to talk to you a bit about kind of the dynamic of your guys' show, specifically kind of the live after on the on the majors and stuff, and and how and it's it's very entertaining television. I feel like you and your coworkers all have a very different approach into how you analyze golf, talk about golf, and whatnot. What's your relationship like with your with your coworkers and whatnot? Sometimes you guys get into it. I mean, is it is it part of the game, part of the spirit? Like, what is your relationship like? Well, you know, um, with the with my hosts. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's fabulous. Um, with my fellow analysts, you know, it's, it's up and down. It depends. Um, you know, I, I, um, I don't know. Everybody does the job differently. You know, the, the way I do the job or the way I try to do the job is to, I spend a month before a major championship if I have it. And I, 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 you ever heard of Robert Caro? C-A-R-O. I can't say that I have. Robert Carroll. In journalism, the the phrase Carroll-esque is what's known for exhaustive research. Like he's written six books on Lyndon B. Johnson. He wrote a book on urban planning in New York City that, um, well, you just don't need to know anything else. And and that's that's the way I try to approach the job is sort of Carroll-esque. I try to, to, to spend days on players that I think will matter. And then I don't really want to know what anybody else is going to say. I don't want to know what anybody else is going to think. And I don't want to read anybody else's research because I want to have my own thoughts. And, and so when you get on the air, it's, it's organic. It's live. You don't know what anybody's going to say. You don't know where it's going to come from. Now, that's different because most of the time they'll have rundowns and scripts and people want to talk about what they're going to say on the air. And I know I have to do that, but I don't, I'm loath to do it. I, I don't really like to do it because I think it takes away some of the spontaneity. Um, but I always say, you know, look, I, I probably, I've argued more with Frank, uh, than anybody else. And, and, and I, and I, you know, you know, Frank and I are not best friends. It's not like we go to dinner all the time or anything, but I have a tremendous amount of respect for him and I'd like to think he does for me. Uh, and the reason I argue with him and I, I say this, uh, and Frank and I talk about it occasionally. Like I don't do shows with anybody else quite like I do them with Frank. I argue with Frank because he is very thorough in his research as well. And he comes at it from a different angle than me always, it seems like. Rarely do we agree on things. But his takes are, are he's hot for them, you know. He's opinionated. And he's a very bright guy. And I don't worry about upsetting him if we disagree and he'll take it the right way and it's never malicious we have a lot of i come at it from a lot of respect for him i can remember um you know like in in 2013 when tiger took the drop on the 15th hole at augusta national um actually 
when was that? That was, that was uh, Friday night. Friday, yeah. Friday. So I actually, on Friday's show, tried to run that in the show, and I suggested it. And I said, you know, we, we need to show this drop. We need to talk about it. Before the controversy even came Before up? Before it even came oh, up. Because wow. I knew the second he took the drop, it was wrong. Because you could see the divot. I saw the divot. I knew it was wrong. And uh, so I... I had the breakdown ready to go and it got quashed because you know, you know, a lot of people that were in charge of what goes on the air were like, it, it, it looked copacetic to them. They're like, yeah, it, it's, it looks fine. I don't see what you're saying. I'm like, listen, it is an issue. It's going to be an issue. This is a big deal. And, you know, we finished the entire show Friday night and we didn't, you know, I, what I was going to say got quashed. Didn't happen. Now that's rare, but it, but it happened that night. Mm-hmm. And I was scheduled to be on the air at 7 a.m. the next morning. And when I walked in the in our production truck at about 6, you know, everybody in there turned and they were like, uh, we should have let you do that. And I was like, you know, you pay me for my opinion. You pay me for my thoughts. It was like, you know, in this particular instance, you know, I don't always get it right. But I knew this was going to be an issue. And so from 7 o'clock till noon that day, that's pretty much all we talked about. Mm-hmm. And... You know, as I said on the show with, I'm trying to remember who it was. It was probably Rich Lerner. Um, there were revolving guests that came through there who all had, I think, a pretty similar take to mine. Novolo didn't come on till noon, and he had a completely different take. Came at it from a different direction, and it was a fresh take. It was uh, it was something really that I hadn't thought about. And as he was sitting there talking, I remember thinking to myself, "I love this guy. I love this guy." You know. Um, because he'll make me think, you know. And that's that's what debate is in, in anything in television, and you know sometimes, you know, people can can accuse people of just taking the other side for a contrarian view and for ratings and whatnot. But at the same time, if you do it the right way, there's if you have a certain opinion, there's probably things that you've blocked out of your mind and you don't right. want to think about because right. you believe something already. And I think kind of the way you go about it is you are always going to be very well researched in what you come up with. It's not pulling, you're not pulling anything out of your ass. I, I will definitely disagree with things that you say at times, but never dismiss something that just, just because it comes from a certain person. And I feel like some people do that with you where they are, no matter what you say, are going to take the opposite side. Do you feel that? Oh <laughs> yeah, I get, I get, I, yeah. I, I can tweet something that seems obvious to me and, you know, the, ne- the next day it's, um, you know, it's, it's topic one on, you know, yeah. everybody's arguing and, you know, and I look, I like to argue. Um, but when I'm trying to formulate my opinion on something, I, I, I always say this, I don't do research to back up my opinions. I do research to find my opinions. Mm-hmm. And then when I find my opinions, I, I think of the counters to them. I think of the arguments to them. I think of any possible way to, 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 to kick my opinion around and turn it inside out. And so by the time I, I spit it out on the air, I, I, I'd like to think I've thought of every angle. Uh, and sometimes that's not the case. You know, sometimes people come on and I think, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Well done, you know, and good point. But when you argue on Twitter, it... it Twitter's hard. It, it's hard well, to argue on. It, it is hard, but I can recognize very quickly where someone's coming from. Like if, if someone uses profanity very quickly in a tweet, they're not coming from the right place. Right. You know, their, their mind is not in the right place to argue. If they use insults... Anywhere in a tweet, they're not coming from the right place. Um, they're not, they're, you know, it's not worth arguing with these people because clearly they're not as rational as they could be. Um, the non sequiturs are what gets me the most when you say something and somebody's 
just completely twist it to like, well, this, well, no, I didn't say that. Right, right. Straw man, uh, yes. non sequiturs, ad hominems, uh, profanity, uh, all those things. And it's like, look, the thing about Twitter is, is, is I, I wouldn't allow just anybody to come into my house, but that's what Twitter does. It yeah. allows, and I often say that you cannot allow, and look, look if there's a thousand people involved in, you know, a debate or a conversation, um, most of them will be well-intentioned. Most of them will be pretty rational. But it only takes a handful, five people, to be completely out of their mind to set a very negative narrative. And they're the loudest. And you can't let that happen. Yeah. So that's why I block them. <laughs> um, you still on a major blocking spree on Twitter? No, I, you know, I... Uh, you slow it down a little bit? You know, I, I, I joke that I think I have blocked pretty much every idiot that exists. We are, we're formally blocked by yeah. Brandon Chambly. We made it out. How many people make it out of getting blocked from you? Uh, not many, but, <laughs> but almost every time I unblock somebody, I, and look, almost every single time, maybe every time, I have found a new perspective about those people that I just, you know, look, I, I, I don't want to waste any time reading you know, profane or rude people. So I just quickly blocked them. Mm-hmm. You know, Eamon Lynch got me to unblock John Huggin. Uh, He's blocked us too. And, and I and I and I love John Huggin. I love him. You know, and and you know, I I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but uh, but I I love to to debate him. Um, I'm trying to think who I unblocked. Unblocked you guys. I uh, I'm trying to think. I recently unblocked somebody else that I that I absolutely love reading, but. Uh, I've started using the mute a lot more. I think that's kind of my dividing line is, all right, I don't need to hear what you have to say anymore. I don't want to read it anymore and I don't need to. And then I use the block exclusively for like, you know what? Like you don't get it at all. I I don't want to say like you don't deserve the content, but I don't, this isn't for you. Like, and I don't want to deal with this. And like, (laughs) if you're going to come into the conversations and use profanity Mm -hmm. and abuse people within the conversations and clearly be out there to troll, like you're gone. Like, it's it's not, it's it's something that is. Right. There's a cost for that behavior. You don't get to participate. Now you can go, you can go start another Twitter handle. Sure. But if you come back with that attitude again, I'm going to block that one. And, and, you know, you know, I, you know, if there's people that are particularly uh, abusive and profane, and then they have friends that start in a sort of a less profane way tweeting me with them in it. I'll mm-hmm. block them. Yeah. It's like, look, I, I, do, I don't, I go on Twitter to improve my arguments and to, you know, find out what I don't know and to, to get, uh, to get access to great information. Twitter and uh, Instagram, uh, they're wonderful, wonderful sources of information. I, you know, they're, they're like my newspaper, you know, they really are. Mm-hmm. I, I get, I get most of my news from there. And you you are just naturally polarizing in, in the way you, you go about things and how definitive you are in a lot of the things you say. Does it bother you at all when people dislike you or give you shit? And has that kind of, <laughs> has that evolved at all? The way you deal with that 10 years ago versus now, has that evolved at all? Uh, well, I, I, I wouldn't say that I was ever opinionated when I played the tour. Um, you know, I, I was on the advisory council and, you know, there were times when I was when I would be called upon to make arguments for or against things, and I would do a lot of research for it. And um, you know, generally those things went very well. But once I got in the opinion business, which is what TV is, mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know, if you're going to do this job right, then you need to uh, spend an enormous amount of time working so that your opinions are bolstered. And you know. Um, if you do the job right, 
you can answer the question why. Because, you know, I, people say, you know, I do use stats a lot, but I don't use stats as a point. They are a source for a point. You know, anybody can spit out stats. They're the what, you know, what somebody shot, how, you know, what amount of fairways they hit. Those are easy, very easy to look up stats and spit them out. It's what the stats tell you. And when you start to answer questions about why things happened, people get very angry. They're comfortable with what, but people get very upset when you answer why or you try to answer why. And, and they, they're like, well, who, do, who are you to say that? And how do you know? And it's like, well, it's my job, first mm-hmm. of all. And second of all, I spend a lot of time to figure out why things happen. And it is just an opinion. It's just my opinion. And I try to make it as, as, uh, as well bolstered as I can. One of the things I find, I don't know if the word is endearing, but what draws me towards certain analysts is when, you know, they they have things that they've said, but then if they have the information to back it up, they will change their opinion or their take on it. You know, listen, I was wrong on this. I've come full circle on this. I try to do that as often as I can. Uh, some of the European fans listening to this will still say I haven't given up uh, <laughs> complaining about the uh, Le Golf National and the influence that that had on the Ryder Cup. But feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm getting the timeline timeline wrong at any point. But you seem to be for bifurcation in golf, you know, professionals and amateurs using different golf balls equipment. And you've changed the, your tune on that. What is the reasoning behind that? Yeah. And what kind of information has led to that? Well, originally I was for bifurcation for because of anchoring. You know, I, I felt like anchoring was a godsend for older golfers and for amateur golfers. And I didn't think it had any business being in professional golf. And I thought that the USGA uh, had completely missed the boat, the RNA. They had completely missed the boat on that when it, when it happened. When, you know, when Orville Moody starts leading the putting statistics, something's wrong. Uh, great ball striker, but, um, you know, or- Orville's maybe the worst putter that ever, ever, <laughs> ever lived. Uh, next to Bernard Langer. And, you know, the, the benefit of the anchor putter was obvious and it was clear. And, and the, the ability to negate the, the necessity for great nerves was clear. And they missed the boat on it. Yet all my friends used the anchor putter. So I thought, you know, this would be a perfect time to bifurcate. But the more I thought about bifurcation, the less I liked it. And it didn't really become... Um, necessary for me to, to state the fact that I had changed my mind on that until the, the debate about the golf balls and equipment became so prevalent. And look, the, the reason I, I'm not in favor of bifurcation is because there's not just, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of golfers that want to play professional golf. Thousands of them. They're everywhere. And there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people that want to get good enough to where they can think about playing professional golf. And if you bifurcate to the extent that professionals play one set of equipment and amateurs play another, you're going to muddy up um, the game of golf. You know, there's every, every golf course has 20 kids that want to play professional golf. They're going to play whatever equipment the professionals play. So their handicap's not going to be the same as amateurs. Uh, professional golfers trying to play the game, their handicap's not going to be the same as amateurs. It's not going to be based upon the same um, equipment. So they're going to be playing a different game. And the one great thing about golf, or there are many great things about golf, is that we all play the same. And really, tees are meant to bifurcate the game. You know, you bifurcate by where you tee off. You know, holes change, strategy changes, the nature of holes changes. So you should be just paying attention to uh, the proper tees and you should bifurcate. 
I, uh, I come from a different school of thought, I think, on, on bifurcation, on the technology and everything. And, but to your point, what you just said, I don't think there's any solutions to the issues are simple. And I think almost, and I don't want to frame your, your opinion on this too much, but I think you're almost of the opinion that we're, we're too far gone with a lot of the technology that there's, it's, it's impossible to go backwards. And I, I agree with that. I, I can't imagine that it's overall good for the business of golf to go back to the golf ball of the mid nineties. Is that a fair way to say the, of the way you look at it? Well, look, the, the one that's the, the one that the USGA clearly missed was the COR, uh, the rebound effect of the driver. Uh, they missed that, you know, that was on Frank Thomas's watch at the USGA in the early nineties. Um, in what know. way did they miss it? So what to, to explain kind of the history of what has happened. Well, the, the COR of a, of a wood is, what is it? 0. 0.73 or something. And, um, with a metal wood, it's 0. 0.8. It can be whatever, but, um, they've set the limit at 0. 0.82, but they didn't set that limit until after the rebound effect had been out and running. They didn't say, whoa, 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 these metal woods are illegal because they're nowhere near the COR of wood. Mm-hmm. There is a, there, you know, in the rules, it's written that the, the face cannot rebound. And they didn't, they didn't say King's X on it at all. So here we go with the Callaway Big Bertha and, you know, like drivers just coming out and impacting the game in a huge way. You know, I saw it up close in person. My partner at the, uh, at the AT&T, you know, was a four handicap. And, you know, I showed up one year. He had a Callaway Big Bertha. I, I can't remember what I was – I think I had a ping driver. I don't even know what I was playing then. But but he – the year before, we drove it the same. The next year, he was 20 yards by me. You know, he was a hell of a player. Um, but something was up. He just drove the eyes out of it. And he couldn't hit his irons anywhere near as good. So they missed the boat there. But if they want to sit down and have serious discussions about – rolling back cor sure i think that that would be i could get my arms around that because um, you know they're going to have to make monetary reparations in a huge way to equipment companies because you know they've done a lot of research and there's intellectual property at work here and this is capitalism at work um the golf ball came about legally came about fine everybody went by the rules played by the rules if you're in the business of making equipment this is what you do and they've done great jobs. And when I play with people, the equipment makes the game better. You know, amateurs drive it better. They 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 hit better irons. They hit better wedges. The ball flies better. It flies further. Uh, I think the game is better because of the equipment. I I, I really do. Um, I think I think to that point, it I can agree with that. If you say that it has probably brought more people into the game to play it. I don't know if I don't think the game is better because the ball goes super far. Like, and this this kind of comes from a, a line I try to try to balance is I, I don't I'm not a I wouldn't say I'm a golf purist, but like I love golf. I absolutely love it, and I like hitting the ball really far as long as it's within the rules. Like I I want to keep hitting it further and keep hitting driver wedge into greens. But any time that I look at it, sometimes whenever I have to play like a round of golf with like some rental clubs and they're like kind of crappy rental clubs. I just start thinking about how to get the ball around the golf course way more than I think about my golf swing. And I end up having like way more fun doing that. I don't know why that necessarily is, but well, you lower your expectations. You do, but it's, it's, it just becomes this, I don't want to say 
the, the equipment's so good now that when it, when I play poorly, it drags me down even more because it's like, well, like this stuff is really, really good. I must be swinging it horribly to not hit it where I want it to, want well, to hit it. I, and I think part of the fun and the challenge of golf has gone gone away in that regard and that shaping the ball around and hitting seven irons into par fours is inherently more interesting. It's harder. It's definitely harder, but I don't know if easier makes golf more fun. Well, I would, first of all, I would say that if you were forced to play with that, uh, that rental set for any period of time past the day, mm-hmm. you would get frustrated yeah. and, and, and you would look for better equipment. You would, you would very soon go, look, you know, I don't like hitting it high with this, you know, 10 and a half driver with the whippy shaft. Um, and maybe better is not the right word. It, it makes golf different. Golf is different. Um, I, I think it's better just because I think it's more fun to drive the ball far. Um, and the quickest way to improve in this game is to hit the ball far. Uh, that is the easiest way to improve. Um, See, I think that's an, that's a major, major issue to me. I, I'm an, I agree, mm-hmm. and I think all the numbers correlate with that. And I was interested in your perspective on this specifically because you retired in, what, 2003? Is that right? Well, yes. Right yeah. around that yeah. time. And where did you rank on the driving distance when, and when you played on tour? Well, it, it, it got progressively worse. The best I ever averaged in driving distance was 49th. Okay. So if you look at whoever's 49th in driving distance right now, they probably average close to 300 yards, um, you know, somewhere in that. But by 2003, you know, I, I was loath to go to the Pro V1. Uh, I didn't like the way it sounded. I didn't like uh, the way it felt. Uh, I didn't like the way it flew. It hit a different window than I was used to looking at. It popped straight up in the air. But, you know, golf was golf was getting beyond what a player of my style could could do very easily. It became, the game got a lot harder for players of my ilk in about That's two, my point. 2001, 2003. The technology kind of screwed you a little it, bit, I think. You know, it just got a lot harder. Um, well, yeah, I mean, if I went, if I were 30 years old and I was my height and my build now, I would swing the way Justin Thomas does. Right. I would swing, you know, I'm not saying I could swing that that well, but I would try to hit the ball high. But I grew up trying to cover the ball and hit it low. You know, so the new ball demands that you hit it up in the air. The new clubs are screaming at you to hit it up in the air, to hang back, to extend your left leg and rotate as fast as you can. So it's it's a it's a different game. Um is it is it is it more fun to to hit shots and curve the ball? Yeah, I mean that's fun for sure. Curving the ball growing up was a lot of fun, but it's also fun to, you know, to hit high towering drives and long three woods and get on par fives and two and drive par fours and you know in some ways you know uh, you know the the changes in equipment have made holes better you know I'd argue that number 10 at Riviera is a better hole now that players can drive that green or, or they can't get on the green but more of them go for it when I played it nobody went for that green they laid up left. And I'm going to have to stop you there. How, if I would ask this question, how, were more holes improved by distance or were more holes made less important because of distance? 
How uh, many holes have been outdated for all of the equipment gains? Well, you tell me which holes are outdated. Oh, I mean, there's a reason why we can't go to Cypress Point anymore. Can't go to National well, Golf. No, Lakes. there is a reason why we can't go to Cypress Point. It doesn't have anything to do with it. That's yeah. an example. You know yeah. what I mean? There's tons of classic golf courses that are just too short by today's standards. Where well, the bunkers are they don't matter anymore. They said that about Marion. It wasn't true. They say that about Pebble Beach. <laughs> they tricked they tricked Marion to hell. How did they do that? They grew the rough they? up. They brought the fairways in. The greens were stimping, what, 13 and a half or whatever they were. They mm-hmm. made them rock hard. And just every shot you missed, you couldn't even hold balls in some of those sloped fairways. That's not the way the course was designed to be played. So it's it was, an effort to protect played par. in 1950. That's how, that's how I guarantee played. the greens weren't stimping at 13 and a half. Or well, no greens were stimping at 13 and right. a half then. That's, none, it was a different, different game. But all that is done in an effort well, hold on a second. to protect They had par. rough in 1950. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, of they course. They had rough in 1950. Yes. And they had rough in 2013. So that's the same. The width of the fairways might have been the same, might not. Don't really know. The only difference is that the greens were firm and fast. But they're firm and fast at Augusta now, and they weren't in 1950. There's new tees added for Marion. It was still short, but there was tons of new tees added Just for a some few. of that. It was playing 7,000 yards. But they don't go to a lot of places like this. Well, I, I disagree that it was tricked up. Okay. And they shot 281 there. They shot actually higher than they it's, shot in 1971. So that's that's what you know. a lot of people that are the Pebble using Beach scoring still, Pebble Beach still works, doesn't it? We'll see this year. Well, when you say using scoring, Scoring, what other way can you measure a golf course other than... scoring can be manipulated. Like the the score that which guys are going to shoot can be manipulated by how you set it up, where you put the pins, the conditions. It can also be manipulated by weather. It definitely can. It can also be manipulated by skill. That's what makes the Open Championship so great is they... I mean, some of those courses, again, are getting very affected by technology, but the the way the RNA runs it, they don't seem to be obsessed with protecting par for somewhere like the U- where the U.S. Open does. Yeah. And well, like, this is where I think it's just incumbent upon architecture to to reinvent itself, if, if that is the debate. Because before we go roll equipment back, I think it's incumbent upon architecture to explore other ideas, if they're so inclined, uh, to to challenge the players in a different way up and around the green. Let's say you can now drive it and you're hitting wedges, you know, into whatever, pick a number, uh, most of the holes on a golf course. Well, then let's figure out a way to challenge the players with slope or angles or um, bunkers that are in a spot where their longer players are tempted to drive it you know, diagonal hazards. Uh, you know, there's any number of ways to do it. The same way, I don't think it's any coincidence that the greatest architects came about in the transition period of the gutta um, to the to the Haskell ball. I don't think there's any, you know, they, they were forced to reinvent themselves. So in that regard, there are a ton of golf courses that do all the things you're talking about, but the way technology is now, the things they were designed, the way they were designed is just not for the modern game, the bunkers that you can carry. And for, especially for the pros, the angles that you're talking about here, it just, it just doesn't matter to them because they are so far down the fairway or even in the rough and they can hit the ball so high with the wedges that angles don't matter when you have a wedge, like for the most part, for the sake of this argument, it doesn't. But when you had to roll a seven iron up there or land it in front of the green or come in from a club that's going to roll out, that made things very different. And even today, even the modern PGA Tour designs benefit the guys 
that are going to bomb it down the fairway and have wedge into it. And no matter how far back you move the tees, it just gives them more and more yeah. advantage. But that's the, always been the case. But it's not the, the correlation between the top players is now so heavily skewed towards the, the longest hitters compared to what it was 20 years ago. Oh, like, no question about that. And it, it, compared it, to what it was in 2013. So it has now become this, this, that is the greatest reward. So we and, agree something needs to be done. I agree. Yeah, okay. I agree. All right, guys. I hate to do this, honestly, but I have to cut part one. There was no good spot to cut it, but we talked for another 50 minutes or so and just couldn't justify posting an hour, 50-minute podcast or whatever that would have been. So please do stay tuned for part two. That will be coming Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. A lot more discussion on technology, golf courses, the golf ball, and uh, I press some Pretty hard. I would say pretty hard. I was I was fair to him, but wanted to get some answers uh, from him on a lot of things. So thank you for tuning in to part one. This was a lot of fun. Uh, and stay tuned for part two coming later this week. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!